Hello and welcome to Unframed, conversations about the arts on 90.5 CFCR in Saskatoon and streaming live around the world at cfcr.ca. I'm your host, Michael Peterson. My co-host, Alejandro, is away. Today we have with us in the studio, Maya Stark. Maya is a Saskatoon-based artist working in a variety of medium, from oil painting to printmaking to most recently fabric work, as she'll tell us. Maya and I have known each other for a number of years. So Maya, you did your undergrad at the U of S, uh, finishing in 2012 with your Bachelor of Fine Arts. Yes. And then in the fall 2014, you finished your Master's of Fine Art at the U of S. Right. That feels like a long time ago and also not that long ago at all. That all happened really fast. So you went straight from your undergrad to your grad studies. What was that transition like? Was it enough time off? Was it Well, that's actually one thing that I've been thinking about a lot since leaving graduate school. If I had maybe spent a year away from the academic environment, if I would have been making different work going into grad studies later. At the same time, when I finished my BFA, I felt like I had a lot of ideas that I hadn't fully formed, and I had a lot of research that I wanted to delve into. And I don't think I would have done that on my own. So I find myself kind of going, hmm, If I did it again, would I wait a year or would I just do it again and, yeah. It gives a certain amount of consistency to the work, I'm assuming, or was it quite different when you made that transition? It was pretty different. I mean, when in in your BFA, you're working on a small thesis show, but you're not writing a paper for it, and you're also finishing all the other required classes that you're expected to do with a bachelor's degree. So I was doing four or five classes a term, very busy, writing a lot of papers, but not necessarily always about my work. And then when you go into graduate studies, all of a sudden you have two classes a term. And maybe you're teaching, which is also a whole other, what's the word? Whole other... Just sort of a different experience. Bag of though. cats, I don't know. <laughs> but you, you have a devoted studio, not just a corner or a door that locks. You have lots of room to experiment. You're encouraged to experiment. You're working in your studio. You know, most people, I think, would spend between six and ten hours a day in their studio, regardless of extra classes. So it's very, very different feeling. Grad school was a big jump in learning how to form an artistic practice. And I think that's one of the most important things that I learned. So speaking about that artistic practice and that commitment it takes to make art it sounds just when you're talking about the level of work it's an opportunity to sort of delve into an intensive and really immerse yourself in your field yeah absolutely in my bfa i was i was making work but not in a i was making it when i had time and when i had the energy in my master's program that is what was taking up all my time and energy that was my main focus and it was amazing <laughs> and i i quite miss having a devoted studio So leaving grad school then is just a jump in a different direction, not a jump backwards, but you have to adapt how you're making to fit those circumstances. And speaking about that studio, I'm wondering what the studio culture at the university is like. You open your door and someone else opens their door and you can wave and say, hey, do you have any tape? I have my little painter's tape and it'll just roll it across the hallway to you. It, was, it felt very collaborative. If you were stuck, you would open your door and people would know they could poke their head in. It was sort of a, if your door was open, there was an invitation there and people could come in and we'd all talk about our work a lot outside of critiques, which was really nice. 
so when, when you started this program then, it became not just an opportunity to have a studio and time to devote to your work, but it also became about developing a community around your work. And I guess if you can speak to sort of how that influenced your work, but also what it's been like since and maybe the challenges or lack of challenges you faced in maintaining that type of community. There was a high level of um, not necessarily collaboration in the physical sense. People weren't necessarily making work together, but there was lots of open discussion, open critique, informal discussion about each other's work. And everyone, for the most part, felt very comfortable divulging, offering suggestions. And that is something that I quite miss about being in that sort of a social interaction. It really felt like everyone had high goals, ambition, and all that energy kind of fed off of each other. And then, you know, you're out of the grad program and you have a spare room that you work in, but you can't do oil painting anymore and you don't see anybody because everyone's moved away and <laughs> it's it's different. I there's there's parts about finishing grad school that I think we could both speak to where you feel a certain amount of freedom, like, oh, I can, I can kind of do whatever I want. I'm on my own time now. I don't have deadlines. Um, if I don't want to do anything research-heavy, I don't have to. But you're, you're also missing a lot of that focused interaction that active critique brings you. And so you're, it's like you're missing all these little mirrors around you, and you're not sure if you should wash your hair. You can create your work in a collaborative area and you know, be your own insular production machine or whatever it is you want to be. Like, I don't think that everyone necessarily needs to find that sort of social interaction and, and foster from it. But I think that that informal critique that grad school offered, being able to, to lean across the hallway and say, hey, I'm not sure about this area. Do you want to come and look at it? Do you have time? I think that was really important because not only do you garner suggestions from other, other colleagues on your work, but it gives you the opportunity to then look at their work and it helps you facilitate a language for discussing art. Something that you notice in their work, maybe you can apply to your own. I think, I think there's a sort of a, what's the word, a positive feedback loop with informal critique. And formal critique as well, but formal critique is very much, you know, it's more institutional and it's more one way. You know, everyone's focused on you. Which right. is very helpful, but I found the back and forth to be some of the most valuable critique. Sure, and sometimes offering someone comment on that work can help you to think about your own in ways you hadn't, too. Yeah, exactly. Then I guess the next question would sort of be about how you've transitioned then since grad school and about how you've made uh, careers as an artist, because you work at the Saskatchewan Craft Council. And yes. So you ha are making money as an artist, which <laughs> not everyone is able to. <laughs> I'm, I'm making money as a as a exhibitions and education coordinator. Right, I'm not necessarily selling any of my work <laughs> right now. <laughs> right, which is always that challenge that sort of comes up, you know. It um, is, yeah. So maybe if you wouldn't mind speaking a bit to sort of though what that balance is like then, because I think sometimes there's that, or at least I had coming out of undergrad a perception that okay, I'm an artist, I'm going to try to make money selling art now, when in reality there's a lot of other support systems and time that goes into the artistic practice. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I'm starting to realize is that I, I mean, it would be wonderful if I just had an amazing studio with huge windows and high ceilings and every supply and media I could possibly want at my fingertips and everyone paid me to do that. But there's also something I really love about working in the nonprofit sector, working in the arts industry, working with culture. 
Um, and my time at the Saskatchewan Craft Council has really helped me figure that out. I can be a practicing artist and work in an area I love and help support that area. So leaving grad school, I was given the opportunity to apply for my job almost immediately. It all happened really fast. So for the first couple months, I wasn't producing any artwork right after my grad thesis finished, which was fine because it was nice to it have was, a break. It was nice just to not necessarily not do anything, but you know, I didn't have a studio that I knew I had to go to when I finished work and I thought, oh, I guess I can, you know, pick up something from Subway if they don't close before I get there and I'll I'll bike home, you know, at three in the morning. <laughs> so there was definitely a relief there because my experience in grad school was just that it was constant go, 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 which was great because I love being productive. I like being busy. I like having deadlines. So when I finished grad school, I started working pretty consistently full-time and then I ended up in the position I'm in now, which is part-time and sort of allows me to keep making artwork. But it, it was a big shift from that busy, constant creation to suddenly not having a studio, like I had a desk and everything was packed up in the basement. But one thing that was sort of good about taking space and taking a break from that is that it allowed me just to sit and like look at everything I'd been the past two years and really think about what I want to do next. So then moving from sort of that practice to the work itself, let's start by talking a bit about your master's thesis, if you wouldn't mind. Mm -hmm, sure. So I feel like there's, when you're writing about and speaking about your work, there's a high level of thought that's gone into it. So then during your master's, uh, you were working through notions of doubles, of the ident different identity that being an identical twin brings, and notions of folklore too. Could you expand a bit about the work you were doing? Absolutely. My exhibition thesis title was called Self Same. And what I was looking at when I started my master's, well, okay, uh, I'm gonna go back a bit. At the end of my BFA, I was, I was specifically thinking about the female body in art, sort of embarking on feminist theory, on aesthetics, you know, going right back into the late 1960s, looking at John Berger there, said I wasn't going to do any name dropping, and I just did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sort of how the female body is portrayed in art as, um, as an object, as a support, as a focus which sort of shames a woman but also puts sexual connotations on their bodies. If you read John Berger, if you've read his essay, Ways of Seeing, he specifically focuses on Western European oil painting as this time of painting nude women and then calling them Aphrodite so that it's not lewd. But all the same, putting them on the walls of offices for men to look at. So I was interested in that and thinking about the self-portrait I had worked on a series of watercolors of sort of animalistic, um, tumorous bodies that sort of bled out of the watercolor and had sort of, maybe you could say, feminine proportions to them. People read them as feminine anyways. And then I was also doing some paintings, self-portraits of myself, and I was multiplying my body in a space, and something I didn't even think about which came up as I was doing them is, oh, is that one your sister? Is that one your sister? I didn't really think about how a self-portrait would be a portrait of my sister and I because we're identical twins. And uh, most twins aren't identical identical. If you spend enough time with us, it's really obvious who's who. But at a quick glance, we're, we're very, very similar. And so that's something that I was interested in at the end of my BFA. 
So in my master's, I started to focus on that more explicitly and started to research twins. What, what is the visual impact of seeing twins? Because, I mean, I'm used to seeing lots of horror movies that are like, oh, the evil twin, or, oh, this girl has a, a twin brother who died in the womb and he's haunting her. And, you know, all these ridiculous stories, which are very fun, very scary. But why is it that twins are scary? And, I mean, the epitome of this is... The Shining's Grady twins, you know, from Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, uh, come play with us, Danny, come play with us, Danny, and, like, why is that scary? Why did he choose to make it twins instead of an older sister and a younger sister like it was in the book? So my research took me into a lot of different areas. My thesis, <laughs> my thesis had chapters set up by um, theme and category because there was folklore, there was mythology, there was psychology, there was concepts of death, concepts of reproduction, concepts of the female body. The research goes so deep and is so varied, it's incredible and something I'm still picking apart. So for my, for my master's, I was thinking about this a lot and trying things out in a lot of different media. I was doing soft sculpture, I was drawing, I was doing photography, I was painting. That speaks to that ability during that master's to really delve in and yeah. not necessarily have an end goal, but to sort of discover where it's going during the process. Yeah, absolutely. In the master's program, there was a lot of encouragement to to not necessarily start out with an equation and then try to find wh what it equaled out to by the end of the master's. There was a lot of encouragement to to experiment in different media, something you're not used to. There was a lot of encouragement to try different focuses or, or Foci, sorry. <laughs> and I think that was really helpful and really important because you, you entered the master's with a, a proposal saying, this is what I want to do. But there was a lot of encouragement to just, you know, let that go a little bit. Like, you don't know how you're, you've never worked like this before. Sure. Most people haven't worked in that heavy, committed way before. Most people going into a master's program. So why would you try to work the same way that you have before? You're, you're, go you're not trying to duplicate your past work. Yeah, absolutely. And then from the sounds of it then too, and I just know from your work, you're also an artist who works in many different media. You're... Yes. <laughs> so can, can you speak a bit about what that process is like for you, how you end up choosing for different contexts how to make work? It's sort of a hard thing to describe. I mean, when, when I was in the master's program, I had access to I had the ability to do oil painting because we had a, a fire bin and, you know, safe ways to dispose of materials and high walls that I could staple into and, you know, enough ventilation that I could work with toxic chemicals pretty safely. So I, I knew I wanted to do oil painting even though for about half my master's I didn't do any oil painting. I just put it aside because I was getting frustrated. But I went back to oil painting at the very end of my master's and I'm not really sure why I did, I was just doing a lot of drawing and I think, I, you know, you just, you start with an idea and you end up trying to figure out how does this fit? Do I want to photograph this? Do I want to, do I want to set up a shoot? Or do I want to see this in color? If I want to see it in color, what kind of textures do I want? And I think I still kind of work like that. I have ideas and I think, okay, but what suits this? I, maybe that's opposite from what, how some people work. They they like oil painting and then they oil paint. I have an idea and I think, okay, I wanna do this in charcoal and ink. But I mean, I've also been 
restricted in certain ways. Like, I mean, I don't have access to a photo studio anymore, so any pho photography I do is digital, and I don't have an easy ability to do oil painting where I am, so I'm working smaller, I'm working in watercolor and gouache and charcoal and ink, so I'm doing a lot more drawing. Sure, and yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes that um, the restrictions can inform the work and they can make you yeah. push the work in different ways too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would have never dreamed of doing soft sculpture, but I found a sewing machine on Kijiji. So sometimes there are restrictions that sort of make you work a certain way, which is really helpful because it has to you deal with that restriction. And then there are things where it's just like, oh, I'm going to buy this sewing machine. It's $30. And then you end up starting to work in fabric and embroidery. And that's completely new and different. And you would never have done that if you didn't have that chance. So there's a balance between restrictions and chance, and both can foster really incredible things, I think. Oh, certainly. And speaking of the... Um the sewing machine you mentioned that you're with your sister Cassie you're starting up a we're together we're we're doing some uh hand embroidery and we're um, making earrings and pendants out of this we're also doing um, embroidery pieces on their own we're also making handmade art dolls so they're little cool. soft sculpture dolls that are heavily embroidered I'm really excited about them um, they're mostly just for us but you know if Eventually, we end up selling them. That's cool. We're called Bad Mood Design. I've seen just a few of the works, but it's playful, but it's thoughtful, yeah. too. This is something that I've played with on and off for years, but never really had the time to devote to. And embroidery is a new media, which I find really interesting, either for, for this, for you know making something wearable or making something somebody could you know put on their wall, or making something more of an art object. So I'm interested to see where that goes. And then sort of continuing on that same vein of moving away from the master school, once you were leaving masters, you talked about how afterward your practice had to change in terms of materials, but it also changed in terms of, I, I want to say, the level of research put behind your work. And yeah. Maybe a sorting <laughs> out of all the research you had done? or Yeah. Um, when, I, when I finished writing my thesis actually writing it because you know you, you do the research for years and then you write the thesis and you're like oh my gosh there's so much more research here than I thought I had. I still have a lot of that swimming around my brain so I haven't actually been doing any new fresh research. Maybe just a little bit more light things like looking at fairy tales, folklore, thinking about how they connect to what I'm interested in but yeah I've certainly let go of that academic why am I making this? What does it mean? How does it connect to this? What artists am I looking at? I'm, I've let go of that sort of art school mentality, which is kind of a relief. I mean, I think it's, I think it's letting me make work that I don't feel I need to defend. While I do think that's important, it's kind of a nice break. Well, sure, and it lets you speak in a different way and to a different audience as well. Right. And talking about your work, and as I mentioned, your most recent exhibition was at Void with Kate Francis called Cautionary Tales. Mm -hmm. You were really working around ideas of folklore and mythology. If I may quote from your artist statement, you wrote, the concept of magic and presence of strange creatures in fairy tales was captivating, as was the grotesque violence in many of the stories. If I may ask a couple questions from there. First sure. of all, when you talk about magic, how would you say that plays out in our lives nowadays? When I think of magic too, I think of just the notion of 
being an artist and trying to create something. To me too, when you speak about your thesis and this idea of going in and not knowing the outcome, not that it's magic, but there's a sense of a letting go or discovery right. or the unknown too. Yeah, I think there's magic in how people create things and how they get from A to B. I mean, the, the word magic has these strong connotations of like little kids with swords or wizard hats, but I, I do think that we can take it in a, in a more big yet refined way and talk about magic in the sense of our day-to-day -day experiences and how being part of a community is magical. Learning to grow things is magical. There's we, all kinds of things in, involved in the idea of making, of production, that, that are satisfying, and that's magical. If we choose to let it, or if we choose right. to... Or, or if, you, if you find the right way that it makes it magic for you. Mm -hmm. Not everyone wants to be part of an urban garden project, or maybe they can't, but there's other things. There's other things that people find. I mean, I, I know people that work in construction but breed orchids, you know? So sure. things like that, right? Right. That space of where you choose to spend outside of the time you have to spend sometimes. Or... Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that kind of comes back to, to trying to be a practicing artist. I think I get a lot from what I make or by the act of making, but I also get a lot from working in the community I'm working in now. So I, I feel actually really balanced, which is amazing. <laughs> That's great. I... Yeah, and I, and I think, I mean, it's good and it's like maybe ideal. Um, I would still love to be working in my studio 24-7, but for a lot of people, what they work isn't always what they love. And I think there's actually a problem with this do-what-you-love philosophy that people have because not everyone can do that. That's a very privileged position to sure. be in. There are people who still have to be a plumber maybe but a lot of people might love being a plumber but just because they're not living the life of an olympic skier doesn't mean that they're not living their life there are you know you, you find what satisfies you in your life then the other part that you talk about in terms of your work is the notion of fairy tale when you're building off of this is it sort of building off of the characters that are there or do you feel it's more of a critique and a rewriting of some of the narratives or both there's archetypes mainly that I'm interested in, mm. I think. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to say because, you know, there's different symbols and ideas that come into your head, and it's not necessarily from one or two fairy tales, but sort of the, the mush of them. Sure. <laughs> well, you, you take it in, you absorb and consume that, and mm -hmm. then a product comes out of that. Regurgitate late. it, yeah. <laughs> it, it's not like a linear, like, oh, I'm going to comment on this work. Right, okay. and I, I think if I was going to do that, it would be more... Um, I think it would, it would be more uh, definable as work about fairy tales. You would see Little Red Riding Hood, you would see the Gingerbread House, things like that. And I'm familiar with work that does that. But I'm not so much interested in fairy tales in themselves as maybe the smaller things they say about people or about what we think of mortality, what we think about the grotesque. That's interesting. The other question I guess I would ask on that is when we're talking about fairy tales, and I may be very off here, but I think of a modern equivalent sometimes as being things like webcomics. When we're talking about female characters and comments of female identity, I think of things like Hark of Agrant or, <laughs> you know, these really sort of, I don't know, yeah. but these really sort of strong female characters or yeah. different things that incorporate 
ideas that we may not have talked about t- even 10, 20 years ago in right. stories. Yeah. I don't know if that, that type of popular culture ever influences as well, or... Uh, I think it certainly does. I am an avid Kate Bearden follower. I love you, Kate. Um, <laughs> and I, I do read and follow quite a few different female um, comic book artists or illustrators, people who write their own web comics. And I think that, I'm not sure what influenced what. I mean, I, I think I started following more, more female artists and writers because of my own feminist identity. And as a consumer, I want to consume work that's made by women, work made by people who are queer, things like that. I don't know if that has so much to do with the fairy tales as it is, well, maybe in a larger way about stories, about consuming and digesting stories. They aren't certainly, like you say, fairy tales anymore, and they're not necessarily fantasy. A lot of them are grounded in reality. And a lot of them are morality tales or cautionary tales. There you go. And I think that's, that's where, for myself, I start to draw these comparisons of they're not there simply to entertain. Right. There's still that message attached, like there were in fairy tales. And like you say, they're definitely not fantasy anymore. Yeah, but I I see where you're drawing the connections. In in fairy tales, like, there's there's a story about a girl who was so vain, she wore her red shoes to church. And then the devil, I don't know why the devil would do this. I think more likely that some other higher power did this. Cursed her, basically, to dance in her shoes until she died. And Mm. she ended up having a a woodsman chop off her feet, and her feet danced away into the forest, still wearing the red shoes. And that's a lesson in pride and vanity. Sure. And the the current stories are are much more about new social commentary, right? That's not saying women aren't inherently vain. (laughs) Like, (laughs) that's not true. Sure. (laughs) And they aren't necessarily about that, but they're, they're they're addressing norms, which have been in place for a long time. And I think um, Kate Beaton does this with, like, having... Um, looking at literature and having female characters be really witty and talk back to different characters. There's new social commentary, and it's not it's not a reaction to fairy tales, but it comes out of the way stories have been told. Sure. It's a reaction to that. Which and uh, yeah, I, maybe I'm wrong. I, I see parallels to your work too about how you're not, like you say, commenting on fairy tales, but all of that history and tradition is in there somewhere. Right. Yeah. All right, so Maya, if you wouldn't mind, um, why don't you talk about sort of what you have upcoming in terms of shows and where people can go to see your work. Yeah, absolutely. I have a show upcoming at the Francis Morrison Gallery in March, um, this coming spring. I have a website. It's mayastark.com, M-A-I-A-S-T-A-R-K.com. I also have an Instagram, which I've been deliberating whether or not to make as a public, you know, artist Instagram. If people want to follow me, they're more than welcome. It's Myar. <laughs> so that's M-A-I-A-R-R. M-A-I-A-R-R. I don't know where that came from. I don't think many people know where their Instagram name yeah. comes from. And I have a blog that I never update, but you're welcome to find it. It's um, Maya Stark with two Ks at the end, dot tumblr.com. Awesome. And then you were also mentioning with Cassie that you have bad mood design. Bad mood design. And on Instagram, you can find us at bad.mood.design. You've been listening to Unframed Radio on CFCR 90.5 FM and streaming live around the world at cfcr.ca. My guest today has been Maya Stark. I will post the links that Maya mentioned on our social media. We're at Unframed Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for joining us today.